I am rolling. This is Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby. Ready? Yep. I'm David Torsivio. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse in the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. We actually haven't answered a lot of the questions about what we think we should be able to know about each other absent the technology. Uh, I think that it's unfortunately, like when we talk about, you know, facial recognition and in particular things like your license plate, something that you need driving around, we actually haven't really had any good decisions made about what it is we should be allowed to know about each other in public space. What is public space? What has the right to be, uh, what are, what information am I entitled to if you are outside of the confines of your home? Um, and I think one of the bigger philosophical questions that I have is um, what about you should I be able to apply any kind of like analysis in a mathematical way at all? Hypothetically, if I'm going to decide on those rights, it shouldn't matter whether in practice that math is perfectly correct all the time, or as we know, often in surveillance and particularly in facial recognition, that it's full of errors. Uh, I think, you know, those are both very important questions, but I think uh, we haven't really decided whether I should have the right to take like publicly accessible information about you and to be able to run it through some kind of system that makes any kind of decision um, absent the person. That's activist and technologist Kate Burtash, who we'll be speaking with later this episode. But first, we are very fortunate to be joined by the wonderful Anthony Basilino, our co-host on our weekly Twitch streams, which you can check out every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. What's up, everyone? Happy to be back. Wonderful. We're so happy to have you back. And before we get straight to business, I do want to issue a small correction of sorts. And I realized after this last episode came out, uh, I was thinking to myself, shit, I've made a huge mistake. And then luckily, some of our listeners reached out and reminded us, yes, you did make a huge mistake. But I do want to clarify, when I was talking about the RCP 4.5 and, and RCP 8.5 and uh, estimates by the IPCC, those, those modelings, that is uh, possible futures of what happens depending on how much carbon dioxide is released and the, the consequent warming. I was saying that those were actual warming. So RCP four and a half was four and a half degrees Celsius warming. Uh, that's not correct. Uh, these, these are not referring to the warming. Um, I realized I made that mistake, but for some reason I didn't correct myself. So just to be clear, those aren't equivalent to warming in degrees, but you know, it's still hot, hot, hot. So that's what we got ahead of us. With that aside, today we're going to revisit episode 68 mask off the sort of a preview of this episode and you know real ashes ashes heads know oh yeah episode 68 mask off that's one of the excellent episodes where david and daniel talk about facial recognition and the possible consequences it has for society well a year and a half has passed we're in deeper shit than ever in facial recognition and while some progress has been made we'll talk about in terms of legislation activism art and other things uh in many other ways we are even deeper in this ultimate panopticon that is tracing all of us and our biometrics down to the very soul of who we are our face in this future that is increasingly dystopian so we felt it was really important to come back and revisit some of these concepts, update some of the technology, and dig a little bit deeper into this massive world that is facial recognition and the related ideas of 
computer vision and how it relates to the biometrics of the individual. Those are some big words that you threw in there. Yeah. Bi- biometrics. No, it wasn't that one. It was like pan- panopticon. Panopticon. It was one. Panopticon. It's it's the the surveillance of everything to pull out some Foucault over here. Oh, okay, gotcha. Which is um, distinct from interopticon, global opticon, and universal opticon. And decepticon. And <laughs> when decepticons get panopticons, we are in deep trouble, boys. And that's what we're headed for. That is the future we're building right now. Decepticons. We don't have any Autobots. Unlucky. I hope, Elon, you're listening. Uh, <laughs> stop making electric vehicles. Let's start building Autobots. <laughs> well, look, uh, Autobots, Decepticons, these are big words. Why don't we just get into some stats? Did you mention we're talking about facial recognition <laughs> software technology? Yep. Well, let's see where to start. Uh, A lot of police officers use facial recognition. Uh, The NYPD has used facial recognition more than 22,000 times in the last three years. The LAPD has used facial recognition nearly 30,000 times since 2009. Both of these, after years of denying by both that they never use these technologies, Um, LAPD, I'm sure most of those 30,000 times are concentrated in the last couple years, and it has to be accelerating dramatically at at this pace. More than 2,400 police agencies have entered contracts with Clearview AI, which is a interesting facial recognition uh, company that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And as of August of this year, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, better known as ICE, has also signed up as a recent client for Clearview AI. And it should be noted that um, a lot of these departments and people who use facial recognition claim that it's used for, you know, only the violentest of crimes. They're used to hunt down murderers and kidnappers and all this type of stuff. But it turns out police have been using this technology uh, for things as small as a $12 shoplifting case, which happened in Oregon in 2018. Okay, well, this is a lot of boring facts, so we're immediately starting with. Let's take a step back real quick and talk just for one second about facial recognition. So we have talked about this on the show before, episode 68, Mask Off. The basic gist of this technology is you take a face that you capture on a camera, on a GoPro, on a CCTV, on a cell phone, whatever it is, and you load it into a database of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, maybe even billions of photos of other people. And you compare this photo that you've captured with faces of other people. And so trivially, you say, okay, well, you know, if you're normally looking through this stuff, it's not going to find matches because even if it's of the same person, the lighting environment is different, the camera is different, so you're going to see different stuff. But what this technology does is it uses machine learning, neural nets, other types of technology to identify certain points in a face like say around your eyes, your eyebrow, your nose, cheekbones, ears, all sorts of different parts of the face that it then maps and then calculates very small differences and distances between comparing it to hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of other photos until it finds similar matches. And then it presents whoever is running this program options of matches and saying, you know, this is how close this is to these these photos is one of these your perp. And people are very, very good at matching faces, even if you can barely see. And so from there, it's very simple to narrow it down, say, oh, yep, that's the person we're looking for. Click on it. And then you, you can identify this individual. 
And this technology exists in a wide variety of, of different places, different ways. Uh, there are private companies creating this technology, utilizing this technology. There are public organizations, institutions like police, like ICE, like the military that's using this and everything in between. It's ubiquitous. You can find it everywhere. We'll go over that. But that's the basic gist of this technology. And in fact, most of us experience this day to day in our everyday lives, right? You may think, oh, you know, this is something that, that only the police are doing. But hell, every time you unlock your phone, if you have an Apple, you're using some form of facial recognition where it scans your face and says, oh, yeah, this is the correct face. I'm going to unlock it. If you have Instagram or Snapchat and you've used the facial filters, that is a form of facial recognition. If you have a ring doorbell, they have this technology where you can recognize people as they ring your doorbell and it'll it'll match it. You use Google Photos. When you upload photos, it'll group people based on the recognition of, oh, this is all the same person. This is all Daniel. This is all Anthony. This is all David. And it'll help you say that, oh, yeah, we're using this to sort information. Facebook does the same thing. But really, it's about building this massive database of facial recognition that can then be utilized in all sorts of different ways to profit and punish people. And that is facial recognition. That's the concepts we're talking about. And that's all you really need to know as we get into the nitty gritty details through this episode. Something I hear often, though, is why should I care? It's something I, I used to say myself. They're like, oh, I have nothing to hide. Why, why do I care if they're looking at or if, if they're using and spreading my data around? I don't care. Okay, Anthony, why should I care? Uh, if I had to guess, I would say because... There's no guessing here. Like, does the idea of companies, police departments, military organizations around the world scanning your face, saving into databases, and then comparing, you know, where you are, where you're moving, what you've looked like, what you will look like, does that bother you? To, to think about that concept, you say, oh, this, this feels creepy. Or you're like, oh, yeah, that's fucking awesome. I love this. It's great. No. You know, like, scan my face, baby. No, I definitely don't, like, think it's awesome. Um, so why? I feel like if they had like the uh, if there was a consent, not even though like that shouldn't be part of it either. Um, the first thought I have is it makes me feel like I'm constantly being watched. And like you don't I, I'd assume most humans don't always want to be feeling like they're being watched 100 percent of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like everybody has something died. You may think you don't, but like everybody has some sort of secret. Um, what, what do you mean, uh, Anthony? I'm a law abiding citizen, you know. <laughs> allegedly i go around i don't break any laws like what do i have to hide uh i don't know maybe the like i was my brain goes to like the type of porn you're watching or something like there's just stuff you keep <laughs> private i don't know let, well let me ask you this anthony so i mean you you mentioned like everyone has something to hide and David took the law-abiding approach, but I want, I want to ask you this. If you're walking down the street, let's say, and you want to, I don't know, do something silly like clap your hand or like spin in a circle or something, like let's just say you're an energetic person. Do you think you would, you would possibly act the same way if you knew that your banker, who you were on the way to go get a loan approved for a new house, was watching you at that moment? Even though you're not about to break the law, you just want to do something silly. Might you change possibly what you're going to do knowing that your banker is watching you? Yeah. To carry on that idea a little bit further, imagine, Anthony, you're having a really bad day. You know, like you went to work, a bunch of crappy stuff happened. You learned that, you know, some things that you loved are no longer around. You're coming home. It's just a terrible day, right? And you're walking home and 
you know, it, the fact that it's a horrible day is on your face. You're looking sad. You're looking mad. Maybe you yell, fuck, you know, really loud on the street. Maybe people look at you. But, you know, in the moment, in normal times, that moment would be forgotten. They wouldn't know who you are. But in a world with pervasive facial recognition, that moment of you acting out on the street, being sad, being angry, could be cataloged by these systems. Your emotional state could be recorded. And imagine in a fully connected world, it affects your credit score or it affects, you know, what type of ads you're about to get online. These types of ideas, they sound sort of ludicrous, but this stuff is being built right now. And while facial recognition often isn't feeding directly into this information yet, many other things that you do, say what apps you look at, what web pages you pull up, what you type in your text messages is being used to analyze your emotional state. And that really does affect, like Daniel mentioned, your likelihood of being able to get a loan or something. Yeah, I never even thought that far down the line. It's not, it's just, yeah, I didn't even think it could, could go that far down the line. It, overall, it just feels invasive. If we're still talking about why should I care, I want to pull up an article that was written by uh, Moxie Marlinspike. Uh, this was a few years ago, but there's two points that I really want to paraphrase from this article. Moxie Marlinspike, for those of you who aren't aware, is a very famous cryptography researcher, a security analyst, and uh, one of the founders behind uh, the Signal application and the encryption that powers that and also has been introduced into all sorts of apps like WhatsApp and many other safe and encrypted things. He, he is a, a rock star in the privacy world um, and also like a pretty cool guy, a sailor, an anarchist. Um, so, so someone to respect in this field, not just a nobody. Yeah, it's always good to have a sailor on our side. So the, he kind of uh, outlines like two broad reasons why we should care about surveillance. And the first one is about how there's so many laws that we can't possibly know if we're breaking them or not. But in a world where you're constantly being surveilled, it's pretty easy to find something you're doing wrong. And he um, quotes from a former defense attorney who writes that the Congressional Research Service of the U.S. government cannot even count the current number of federal crimes. These laws are scattered in over 50 titles of the U.S. state code, encompassing roughly 27,000 pages. Um, and some examples used include like it's illegal in most places to own a lobster under a certain size. And it doesn't matter if you bought it from the grocery store or not, or you found it on the beach dead. So like there's a million laws that no one even knows, not even the police themselves know. But if there's 100% surveillance and then some bad actor in the government or police for whatever reason said, you know, I don't like this person. Let's dig up some dirt. They're going to find something you're doing that's illegal. So that's point number one. Point number two, though, which I had never really thought about before, and this is a more philosophical point, is that imagine a world with 100% surveillance. Everything you do, you wake up, you brush your teeth, you go out, you go party, you go to work, you come home. Every single moment of your life is captured autonomously. It's stored in a database and computers with their algorithms can sort it and know everything you do. The police can watch it, etc. And now in that situation, there's nothing you can get away with. So how do you change laws if you can't break them? Hmm? Just like, like imagine, I don't know, just imagine a town somewhere where it's illegal to uh, not be on a sidewalk unless you're in a vehicle. And like that just happens to be the law. And then... Hold up, hold up. You said sidewalk in a vehicle. No, it's illegal 
not to be on a sidewalk unless you're in a vehicle. Oh, so like you, humans can only walk on a sidewalk. Like I can't walk on grass or on right. in, in a house yeah. or a street. But then imagine, okay, for whatever reason, no one anticipated bicycles. So, you know, it's illegal to be on a bicycle on the road. Okay. Now imagine a bunch of people in this town are like, man, we love bicycling. Let's just bicycle. And then, you know, it's going to be great. And in our current world, maybe that happens. And then the city council is like, you know what? Bicycling is great for our town. Look how many people are doing it. Let's make the town more accessible to bicycling. And then they're like, oh, wait, we didn't even know we had this law that actually technically makes it illegal to bicycle. But look how much it improves our town. Let's change it. Okay. But let's go back. Everyone's being surveilled by an autonomous facial recognition thing that automatically tags people as like criminals anytime they do something. Now, in the same situation, you get on a bicycle, go down the road, you're automatically flagged to a police officer that you're a criminal. And because police only see people through like a very singular lens of criminal or like wealthy business owner, they're going to flag you down, harass you, and you're never going to want to do it again. And you're never going to get that critical mass of people who want to actually change and be part of the change of a better town. And so this kind of goes back too to like the social cooling aspect of constantly being surveilled and knowing that there's a consequence to your actions of constantly being surveilled. It forces people to conform and limits the ability for people to really change culture and their and themselves and be free human beings. And another example that Moxie uses in in his article is how could marijuana have ever been passed uh, recreationally? in the United States if no one had ever picked up marijuana because they were constantly being surveilled and it was highly illegal. That's an interesting point. Well, this is a really good point. And, and first off, just to jump back to your first point right there in that article, I think it's mind-blowing, first off, that not even anybody within the government that, that you know, enforces all these laws, that writes them in the first place, even knows how many laws there are, much less what they are. And in my eyes, that really sort of invalidates this whole larger system where if people don't even know what we're supposed to be enforcing. Like, how can you judge the fact that that what we are doing is fair in any way, shape or form? And to build off that point, there are so many people out on the streets right now doing activism, doing organizing that know the system, the quote unquote justice system is not fair in any way, shape or form. But in a system where there is perfect panopticon and perfect enforcement of these laws, the very act of protesting so many of these unjust laws is in many cases itself illegal. Here in New York, constantly, if you're out doing a march or something and you step off a sidewalk, even for a second, that counts as, as you know, a, a breaking the law. You're not supposed to be in the sidewalk. You're obstructing the flow of traffic. And uh, now your charges go up. If somebody arbitrarily labels your protest, uh, you know, an illegal gathering or a riot or something, now you have much higher charges. In a system that could take everybody there, capture all their facial uh, data, and then just run it through a database to see who was present. And, and you don't just need facial recognition for this, but also things like your cell phone, um, uh, uh, other biometrics that can be leaked, all sorts of things of identifiable information. Then you can basically make it illegal to even protest these laws that are unjust in the first place. And that is what we're seeing right now. And in many places, we're not seeing uh, a, a progress in this where the laws that are so unjust are being undone and made better. But in many cases, we're seeing crackdowns on the people who are protesting. The people who say, this is how we have to fight these unjust laws. Well, new laws are introduced in order to, to try and challenge them. We see down in Florida, Rick DeSantis is introducing new laws to make it legal 
to shoot and murder people understand your ground judgments who are, are accused of looting who are accused of blocking the the flow of traffic and that is the reality in a lot of the places in the country and and so you could see the direction we're going and a a system that enables perfect mass surveillance like facial recognition is attempting to do is absolutely an attack on the freedoms that we are all supposed to have that we're all supposed to have as the very basis of our experience as as Americans but also as people here on this earth it sounds like y'all are talking about a pretty perfect system. Does it ever miss? Like, does it ever, is it ever incorrect? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, so, so we're talking about something that is, you know, years away that, that people are, are trying to actively build towards. But you're right, Anthony. In fact, right now, facial recognition oftentimes, well, you know, it can be spooky accurate. It also fails dramatically and frequently. Yeah, so it's it's been widely known for a long time now that facial recognition software is actually pretty terrible. And and the reason why this is important, as we'll get to, is because so many police departments, so many companies deploy it without any accountability at all across the country for a wide range of purposes that impact people's lives dramatically. And it's a terrible, terrible technology. And people have known this for a long time. It's very bad at identifying anyone who is not like a white, a cisgender man. Facial recognition technology is basically like your racist friend who thinks all black people look alike. That's exactly what facial recognition uh, does. It it hugely misidentifies people of color. It frequently will like match a black person to an Asian person. And this has actually been studied. There was a report that came out December 2019 by the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, that basically found that the facial recognition algorithms behind most of the companies deploying them falsely identify black faces and Asian faces 10 to 100 times more than white faces. They tested 189 algorithms from 99 companies. Microsoft had an almost 10 times more false positive for women of color than men of color. Since time, algorithm produced a false positive more than 10% of the time when looking at photos of Somali men. This company, by the way, is valued at more than $7.5 billion, and it also has a high false match rate for basically all comparisons. So this is the technology that's being deployed uh, and used to prosecute people, pull people over, lock people out of Rite Aid stores. Um, Which we'll talk about. Yeah. I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. That sounds specific. <laughs> it's, it's one of the more wild uses of this technology. But, you know, there are so many cases where this technology is deployed. And, and like that Rite Aid example, which we'll get to and is funny, but actually has like really bad negative effects on people's lives. There was a recent case in Detroit where uh, somebody was charged wrongly for a crime um, in 2019 Based on a mismatched facial recognition, um, it was eventually discovered that this was, you know, a mistake. But this person had to go, you know, to prison, had had to uh, go through this court trial process, um, you know, and, and especially now in 2020, where prison, even if you didn't commit a crime and you're there waiting to prove that he didn't commit a crime, can be a death sentence. Uh, there are some prisons in this country where 80% of the people who have died 
uh, from coronavirus and there are huge amounts of people dying from coronavirus in prisons across the country. 80% of the people who have died of it didn't even commit a crime waiting to get out, you know, on bail or something. So like that is the state of prison. It can be a death sentence alone, even for the innocent. And so cases like this where you accidentally put someone in in, in jail incorrectly based on a facial mismatch, which we'll talk about, can be death sentences. But so Detroit, where this happened, has had this technology in place since 2017, and they've done a lot of studies, a lot of work on it, and they found that uh, the facial recognition software that they're using misidentified people a lot. And do you want to guess, Anthony, how frequently this technology got it wrong? Overall, or just like in this instance? Yeah, you know, this is state-of-the-art facial recognition technology comparing a huge database of people's photographs to photographs of, you know, the uh, alleged perpetrator of a crime. How many times do you think that this software got the match it said was correct actually to be wrong? Uh, maybe like a fourth of the time? 25% of the time. No, it's actually 96% of the time without human intervention that this technology failed. Oh, that's, that's a lot. 96%. Strike one, Anthony. And, <laughs> Strike three and you're off the show. Yeah, you better not get three strikes. I thought it'd be pretty good. I don't know. Like, no, uh, and... and Further studies uh, that the the department was forced to do um, based on the analysis of their use of this technology after they wrongly charged Williams with these crimes found that they were using facial recognition on black people about 97% of the time. So the very application of the software itself seems to be a racist use. And so you would say, of course, that Detroit is going to get rid of this technology. But actually, literally this week of recording this episode, the Detroit City Council just had a vote on whether or not they should extend the use of this technology. So let's look at what this technology has done in the past year, right? So one, they've accidentally arrested somebody who was innocent with it. Two, they found that it fails 96% of the time. And three, they found that it's used 97% of the time on black people. So you are city councilman of Detroit. You're most likely, you know, an educated black person who is 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 very devoted to their community and, and, and put their lives to that practice. Are you going to vote yes or no to extend the use of this technology? Daniel. Oh, I should have been paying attention. Yes, I will extend the technology. <laughs> You're going to use the technology again, even though it fails 96% of the time. Okay, well, uh, what about you, Anthony? Are you voting yes or no for this? No. You're going to vote no. Well, I am sad to inform both of you that the the extension of the use of this technology was passed to renew the contract 6-3, to three, mm. um, including several black uh, city council members voting for it, despite the fact that they know it was used in a racist way. They say that the reason why they felt okay voting for it is that it could be a, a an important public safety tool. And then also they have new guidelines after the botched Williams arrest where it can only be used after multiple levels of approval and also uh, only on certain violent crimes. But uh, we all know that Police guidelines for the use of, say, force, um, you know, after approval and at and only certain violent crimes is not something that the police have a great record on. So uh, I'll hold my breath before I think that that this is a, a positive benefit to their community and not just a huge bailout for these technology companies. But these types of things, they haven't even just been applying them to individuals in, in Detroit. And this is what really blows my mind is the city council also voted to use this technology in, uh, in polling booths, which seems like a huge violation of privacy. But what do I know? I'm not a politician. Yeah, isn't that like uh, that's supposed to be like there's like curtains at the booth and you're telling me there's facial recognition within the booth? It's Detroit, baby. Yeah, that- a state in uh, South Central India also. Uh, two months ago, approved facial recognition tracking in a bunch of their voting polls as well. 
um, interesting, I guess. We can maybe talk about that. Yeah, we'll get to it later and uh, like the violations and the fact that most people don't even realize that, that they're being so close surveilled. But um, I, th- I feel like we're slightly off topic. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, well, hold up. I want to I back up. So you're saying that the police department found that they have a 96% failure rate and they decided to renew the contract with the company anyway? And so I heard you say something like bailout for the company. Like maybe you think this is just paying uh, like a like a jobs program for the company. Yeah, jobs program for you know Microsoft and Amazon, the the people operating these large scale facial recognition programs. That's that's a nice idea, David. But I I kind of want to put forth another idea. Okay, let's hear it. See if see if you can follow. I want to present this as an idea, not like a definitive claim, because I don't want to be accused of claiming the police have bad intentions here. But one of the most like insidious nature things about this technology is I feel like it's just the logical conclusion in a way of like a pattern in our society to outsource everything and in the process obscure and outsource accountability, right? So if your neighbor's doing something crazy or like you hear some like yelling in the next door apartment, you don't really have to respond to that because you just call 911 and now the, the accountability for responding to that, checking on anybody is off your hands. That's just one example. But then the police, I feel like, are doing that with this technology because for police departments uh, and the politicians and the companies who are their beneficiaries, being accurate, I feel like, in their duties is not actually as important as just having a really tight control and as tight as control as possible on working class citizens, the workers, the laborers, the people who are getting screwed in in their labor exploitation, but ultimately powering all of uh, civilization. So think about it. When, When a police officer is hunting down people who bounce $12 checks and they're willing to surveil school children, do you honestly think they're in it just for like the purity of justice of like catching the bad guys just for like the good of it. And I think there are thousands of people serving life sentences for less than an ounce of weed. There's thousands of people sitting in jail on Rikers Island for months without a fair trial because they're too poor to afford the $500 cash bail. And for police departments who are operating in this injustice system and who receive more funding, the more people they can send to jail and send profit to the corrections uh, corporations and all the private companies that benefit from that, sucking the uh, taxpayer dry in the process. Do you honestly think they care if they pick up the wrong person for some petty, insignificant crime? It sounds like they... They're gonna get, they, it's like From what you're saying, it sounds like they're getting more use out of like getting petty crime or just like smaller stuff like i thought the initial idea behind it would be to you know counter terrorism and just bigger crimes and that doesn't sound like it's the case i think yeah you're on to something here to to the police departments who see all people as criminals all black people as criminals the the working class all these people i i'm putting forward are criminalized in the police eyes and crime in a lot of cases, is just made up and used as an excuse to justify arresting people in the first place. We all know that white-collar crime, uh, theft by wage, uh, wage theft, and police seizure outnumber all petty thievery combined across burglary, all types of what we would consider the typical crime of theft. 
way overshadowed by corporate theft and police theft. So they're not going after the big players anyway. They're going after the working class only because that's their job to terrorize and to control them. But here's the problem, right? If you're a cop, you can't just walk up to any black person and say, I'm arresting you because you're black and, you know, I don't know, you're suspicious or something. If you do that, well, let me tell you what, the NAACP is going to be up your ass so fast, Johnson. The boss is going to put you on night shift doing desk work and your eyeballs are going to be up in papers from now come 2025 as you spend your time approving expense reports for the military grade gear all the boys in blue out there on the streets are using to bust kneecaps on BLM protesters. But had you walked past that same perp with your body cameras, facial recognition tracking on, and it got a hit, well, now you're free to engage, sheepdog. So what these companies are actually selling these police departments is not a system for accurately pursuing justice. What these companies are selling them is a so-called get-out-of-jail-free card that allows them to arrest anyone without repercussions because if it's the system that gets it wrong, that's not the officer's fault. The officer is just doing their job. They're just doing their beat, driving down the street, and a notification goes off on their computer that says, we got to match, arrest this guy. And now that officer has plausible deniability to carry out force on this unsuspecting person. Who cares if it's only 4% accurate? Because that's not the point. But I'm just, that's just an idea. I'm not, I'm not claiming that that's actually what police departments are doing because they're out there pursuing justice. They're all about the law. You know, um, boys in blue support our law enforcement agencies. <laughs> yeah, that's what we love to do on this show. Check out episode 24, Suspect Science, for how we really feel about the boys in blue and uh, their friends in white in the labs uh, behind the scenes. But uh, there's one thing I, I think you, you, you really touch on there that's well, and that's that, that accountability point here, Daniel, and that in a lot of cases when cops fuck it up, which is a lot of the time, Almost all the time, they they get a lot of blowback from the media, from uh, you know their their city council overseers, etc., uh, from the public. And while there is typically no accountability for that, they still get you know like blasted in the press, and it makes them feel bad because you know they can't pretend they're warriors or whatever when when people are yelling at them for you know making obvious idiotic mistakes endlessly, like the Three Stooges. But if they can say, oh, it's not our fault, it's a piece of computer program that got it wrong, people are like, oh, yeah, computers, they mess up all the time. It is a crash. Whatever. 96% rate? Well, you know, it's honestly amazing it works at all. And so then they're happy to, you know, keep flushing hundreds, thousands of dollars, millions of dollars a year down on these programs uh, because it takes some of the blame off of them. And it also takes some of the responsibility of their job, which is, you know, actually doing police work. And they can shove it off on something else. They can spend more time, um, you know, shooting the shit on the sidewalk, which is what I typically see them doing. But while a lot of the stress and pressure and, and fear around these surveillance systems and facial recognition in particular is centered on these public institutions, the police, organizations like ICE, the military, etc., we should actually really be concerned about the private industry and how they create, enable, and deploy these technologies all around us constantly. And in fact, many of the technologies that these police are using are, of course, not developed by the government itself, but are being developed by private companies and contractors. The most famous, or I should say infamous, is of course a technology called Clearview AI. 
And this is a company that only allows you to contract with them if you are a, a law enforcement agency or some other sort of defense, et cetera, related uh, organization. And what Clearview has done, and this is so insidious and, and really honestly kind of depressing, is they have scraped. And when I say scraped, I mean downloaded automatically billions and billions of images from the Internet. Billions. They've scraped Instagram, they've scraped Twitter, they've scraped Facebook, they've scraped Flickr, they've scraped Google Photos, basically anywhere you can find photographs online. They've taken all of this and downloaded it. As they've downloaded it, they've downloaded the information of what they're looking at. Anthony, you posted a selfie, Clearview has it. And they've utilized that selfie in order to build a database that says, this is what Anthony Basilino looks like. And they found all your photos, Daniel. They've looked on the Ashes website. They pulled them from Twitch. They pulled it from Facebook. And they said, this is what Daniel Forkner looks like. And they've done this hundreds of millions of times for every single person around the world they can get their grubby hands on. And they've created a database where all a police officer has to do is log in, upload a photograph that they have of the alleged perpetrator of whatever crime they think somebody might have committed, whether that's, you know, an actual legitimate violent crime or whether it's standing in the street protesting, and they can instantly get a match with fairly high degrees of accuracy. Clearview tends to be much more accurate than a lot of the other technologies. I've seen um, some leaked marketing material where they claim over 96% accuracy, so the exact opposite of some of these other ones. And of course, that's marketing material, so take that with a grain of salt. But we do know it works well, and... Uh, there's a reason why 2,400 plus law enforcement agencies have active contracts with Clearview, including large agencies like the New York Police Department. And this is what we talk about when we say it's time to fear facial recognition. Clearview is really interesting to me, David. They have the largest uh, database of photos available at the fingertips of those who use the software, which is mostly police departments. And you mentioned how they scrape photos from Facebook. I want to point out that's actually violating Facebook's terms of service. You're not allowed to scrape photos from mm -hmm. the social media site Facebook. However, interesting possible connection is that Peter Thiel sits on the board of Facebook and it just so happens that Peter Thiel was an early investor in Clearview AI. So connect the dots in this conspiratorial uh, thinking here, and maybe, maybe there's a reason. Of course, for those who don't remember, Peter Thiel is uh, the uh, evil mastermind, um, one of the founders of PayPal, which is where he made his first you know, billion or whatever. And then he went on to found the company Palantir, which is primarily a defense contractor that offers big data services, collecting intelligence data from all sorts of different websites and then packaging it up to sell to the U.S. government at huge losses every year because they've never made money, and which is really incredible to do in the defense industry, but they figured out a way to, to, to lose money there. So, you know, obviously a great businessman, but what he really is beyond anything else is an incredible snoop and uh, intelligence spook, figuring out how to gather all this data and make it easily available to those in power so that they can oppress those beneath them. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, evil people, to me, this, this company really fits the bill of like, if we're going to imagine like the evil corporate overlord that's like trying to take over, listen to this. This is pretty crazy to me. So there's a journalist named Kashmir Hill. And she's been like a tech uh, journalist monitoring these types of things. And she was really trying to find out more about Clearview in 2018. And knowing that a lot of police departments use the software, she volunteered herself 
to like a couple of these police departments to run her photo through the software to see what came up. Now, here's what's interesting. As soon as police departments ran this journalist's photo through their Clearview software, representatives from the company actually called the police to say, hey, are you talking to the press? What's going on? Why are you, why are you flagging this person's photo, right? So number one, that's crazy. But number two, what that shows is that the company is monitoring what the police are monitoring. Right, so it handed over this massive surveillance technology to police, and then it's like looking over their shoulders to be like, "Hmm, interesting. Oh, okay, cool." Now, here's the other part. Number three is that after she did this, Clearview started um, preventing her photo from matching with police departments' uh, database. So now, when they ran her photo through the system, it showed up no matches. And I think this is because, well, I don't know why, but I think like the company had adapted its its system on the back end in response to this this happening. So what you're seeing is a corporation having the ability to not only monitor what local police departments are doing, but change what they see. So imagine this world where this the international company has interests all over the world, it's got money flowing into its pockets from everywhere, and is having the ability to shift and change and manipulate police departments uh, change who gets matched in their systems, uh, could potentially protect known criminals that it wants to for whatever reason from showing up in these systems. And that's how like James Bond would get away with stuff, right? Like you imagine in these movies where he like calls up a contact, like I need to get through the security system. You need to change like, well, this is the company that can do it. And, and they're selling this software to over 2,400 police agencies the, the police agencies have no idea how it works. It's never been tested for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate it is. And the company has full-on discretion to use it however they want. By the way, a lot of police departments don't know, but when they upload the photos, like sensitive, confidential like investigation photos to the database to run checks and stuff, the company just goes ahead and takes that and stores it on their server anyway. Right? This is... <laughs> it's like... A, it's like just open the floodgates to like corporate uh, seizure of uh, all things evil. I got a good way to put this for Anthony here. So Anthony is a huge Chris Nolan fan. <laughs> and uh, one of his favorite movies is, uh, you know, Dark Knight. Do you remember that scene in the end of Dark Knight where uh, Batman builds that oh, perfect yes. surveillance tool that, that takes every cell phone and it like uses all the video feeds from all of them to like spy on the entire city all at once? Yeah. And then he's like, he uses that to like find the bad guy. And then he's like, this is too powerful. It must be destroyed. And he like blows it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this is that system, more or less, but, you know, built by private VC investors. And then just like you can subscribe to it if you're a police department. Now, every police department in the country has access to it. Literally, basically, that's what we've built here. And that's what is available to all these people to access. And, you know, you know, I'm sure if if, if I'm someone famous and wealthy, I, you know, I'm Beyonce, I can contact Clearview and say, hey, flag my account just like you did to Kashmir Hill so I don't show up on here. But you know that cops are abusing this shit. You know cops are using this to look at ex-girlfriends. They're using this to stalk people. They're using this in all sorts of ways that it's not intended to be used. And it's a huge violation of privacy, but we just don't know about it. It's all hidden behind these obscure walls because it is a private corporation. And so to go back to your point about accountability, Daniel, this is one of the ways that police departments 
public organizations, which are supposed to be open and, and, and free for our transparency in order to make sure they're not doing fucking wrong things, can instead hide all the shitty stuff they're doing behind this wall saying, oh, you know, it's a contractor. They're a private corporation. They, uh, you know, these these open transparency, open access laws don't apply to them. You can't file a Freedom of Information Act. You can't file a FOIL, whatever it is. So you just don't know what's happening, even though this technology is being used in a very public way that impacts all of our lives. And that's, in my eyes, incredibly concerning. And when they say things like, oh, we harvested this data, we, we scraped all this data, a lot of people's eyes glaze over, right? But imagine if representatives from Clearview were walking down the street and every time you were on the street snapping a photo of you and they were doing this billions of times all around the country constantly people would be like what the fuck this is not right stop taking my my picture and loading it into this database you know but because it all happens automatically on the internet and nobody ever hears about it there's no outrage but this is somebody an organization a group of people and you know a bunch of obviously the engineers and, and developers and marketers and whatever know they're doing something wrong. You know, fuck you for working at Clearview because you're a piece of shit. But um, they do it anyway, because at the end of the day, there is a way that you can commodify the act of invading someone's privacy. And you could sell it as like, oh, this is for, you know, public safety or whatever. But that's really what you're doing. You're taking somebody's identity. The fact that you have a face, Anthony, that you have a face, Daniel, that I have a face. I do. And that face is unique, <laughs> you know, allegedly, this is a podcast, but allegedly, and, uh, and turning that into a way to profit. You don't know me. And that's what Clearview does. It, it's incredibly fucked up on like an ethical level, on a philosophical level, on a, on a moral level. But then also just like, when you explain this, people are like, what? Does this, do they, does Clearview have any ties or like with the NSA? Like, do, do they work in hand or better or differently? We aren't sure entirely what their contracts look like or even entirely who they are. The only way that we even know some of this stuff is because Clearview in their marketing material has been like, oh, yeah, you know, we've contracted with 2,400 law enforcement agencies. But law enforcement agency is a very generic word and could mean a lot of things. There is almost certainly cooperation with intelligence organizations, you know, maybe like the NSA. But also beyond that, the NSA and these other organizations almost certainly have technologies very similar to this that they're working on, regardless of whether they're using utilizing it through Clearview. And for those of you who want to test out something sort of similar to this, there is a crappier, and I say like a very crappy version of this, that is sold, and I'm using huge quotation marks, as a way to help you <laughs> reclaim your privacy online. And what they've done is they, they've also scraped, you know, millions and billions of photos, um, and they've done a shittier job of it. The website is pimeyes.com, P-I-M-E-Y-E-S.com, and you can upload a photo to this, and it'll show you matches of your face that is found online. So, like, Daniel, Anthony, and I tried this, and we all took a photo, uploaded it, and sure enough, it found samples of us online that it had discovered somewhere. Oh, hold on, David. So you mentioned um, cops using this to like stalk people, and PEMIS is like pretty low tier, but publicly accessible. And a lot of people, though, police and investors alike, predict that Clearview is going to be available to the public mm -hmm. uh, at some point in the future, meaning we'll all have that ability to, let's say you see somebody on the subway and you're like, hmm. That person is attractive. I'm going to stalk them and be a, it'd be a creep. So you take a photo of them and then you load it into this this Clearview app that you downloaded. And then you know their name, their address. You find a million other photos of them. And now you know everything about them. 
Well, a, an app like that did exist in Russia a few years ago that downloaded everyone from VK.com, which is the sort of Russian version of Facebook. And it was intended just for that. You're creep on the subway and you see like a beautiful person. You take a picture of them and then it, it would pull up their profile so you could like reach out and contact them. And it was it was taken down because everyone was like, this is obviously such a fucking terrible idea. So they, you know, they shut down the company, they shut down the app, took it down. But, you know, leave it to Russia to find morals and ethics before the United States does. Um, and, you know, that's the situation we're in. As long as somebody can make money and buku bucks off of it, then, you know, whatever horrible idea you have, someone's going to put into practice. Anyone out there, though, who still might be thinking, I'm sure corporations at least have our best interests at heart. There's another company called Verkata who also uh, does facial recognition. And this company, by the way, is like, oh, we're not going to be like Clearview. We're only going to sell to private businesses like Red Lobster and Equinox and Jewel Labs. So, you know, if you go to a Red Lobster, they're probably spying on you. But they installed these cameras in their own office and nine of their sales, like senior sales staff, got into the system, surveilled a bunch of their female colleagues, found images of them in inappropriate situations and then passed it around in an internal work chat with sexually explicit captions. So no one got punished. No. The CEO was basically like, well, you can either get fired or I'm going to cut your pay just a little bit. And everyone stayed at the company. No one got fired. These, these are the people running these companies. If you think that the corporations have our best interests at heart, uh, well, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck does red lobster need facial recognition cameras for like what on earth are they marketing that stuff like why would you ever be like oh yeah we can sell more yeah. lobster rolls if we could just track everyone's face in our, our restaurant like that's why i don't understand remember that law i pointed out which if you have a small lobster oh it's a federal crime they're cooperating with the feds in order to bust people buying too small of a lobster it makes sense now but like but really when it comes down to it at the end of the day like i really fail to understand the positive benefits here that that keeps pushing all this private adoption like i can understand it for law enforcement because you know they're like oh this will mean i don't have to do any work and it could do evil better but like red lobster equinox gyms like what I'm curious. It makes me curious if there's any like potential benefits to having facial recognition. I know like with like logging into a computer phone, it can kind of seem like a benefit. I was wondering if you guys knew of any off offhand. Well, what do you what do you think? Personally, I find the, the the closest I come to it daily is using my iPhone, and I hate Face ID. I've been saying that not that it's good uh, to have either, but I did say that Touch ID is a much better system and works a lot more flawlessly but i don't i i don't see uh, like benefits in a, my daily life otherwise well I, I think when you're pitching it it depends on who your target audience is for when you're selling these benefits of the technology if you're targeting the private public so like you or me um you know as as a consumer mm -hmm. you are selling facial recognition as something that either offers one convenience so like oh you can unlock your phone faster or hey you're at the airport instead of filling out this form just smile at this camera and it like mm -hmm. recognizes you automatically fills it out whatever oh you're coming to the gym and you forgot your like uh key card mm -hmm. well just look at the camera and it'll recognize your face and let you in so you know a convenience angle and the other one is is 
to a lesser extent, novelty. So it is novel. If you're a high-tech gym like Equinox and you want to be like, oh, we're cutting edge and everything, having a facial recognition login is something that you can demonstrate that to your customers that you're like on the cutting edge of tech. Because in the end of the day, you know, you're a gym. How advanced can you be? But the way that you can differentiate yourself, even in something trivial like that, is can be used like as a branding thing. But then also, too, in a lot of applications like Instagram, Snapchat, where we see the application of this facial recognition for, you know, filters for novelty purposes, but also just because, you know, it's, it's a way that you can make better thirst traps and uh, you can try and get out there. What's a thirst trap? For all the other horny people in the world <laughs> to try and get them to be horny for you using like a face filter that makes you look hotter, right? So those are the two angles I think that are pitched predominantly at consumers. So, you know, lying to people or tricking them that it's good to save five to 10 seconds logging in that they would otherwise. I just thought of a, an actual good application of it. Let's hear it. If you're a person who forgets people's names, then you like install facial tracking on your glasses, like an augmented reality thing. Or you have like an earpiece and anytime you walk into the room or or if you if you don't have sight, if you're blind, you walk into a room, a little thing goes off in your ear and says, there are five people in this room, your friend David, your friend Anthony, your parents and your brother. Okay, Iron Man. Well, okay. Here's some <laughs> here's some things with that. Disability access is a good point, and face blindness is an actual disease. And I can 100% see this being useful for that kind of thing. But for somebody who is blind, they still have ears. And in your example, because they're specifically listening for what the, the audio tells them. And, uh, you know, everyone has a distinct voice and ways of speaking. So it should be easy for them to determine who they're talking to. But, but they're not talking. I'm saying like if you were to walk into like a room and you just want to know who, if you can see, you know who's on the other side of the room without ever talking to them. Okay, but what is it? That means everyone has to be facing you, right? And also that it has to be accurate. Wouldn't it be more embarrassing if these technologies get it wrong and you're like, oh, hey, Bill. And they're like, Bill's not in here. <laughs> That's George. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Disability access, though, I think could be a potential use, but this is not how we're seeing this technology um, marketed. And especially the main place where this technology is finding places is not to private individuals, but to corporations themselves. And the use for them is not disability access or something, but in tracking. How can we better identify an individual so that we can better target them to manipulate their behavior into making us more money as easily, seamlessly as possible? So, for example, these new Amazon stores that are completely without any checkout system, you just walk in, it recognizes your face or some of the newer ones, it does a palm scan and you take what you want and you leave. And using all this computer vision tracking, you know, it, it figures all that stuff out. Ostensibly for the consumer, it's about convenience. Once again, you don't have to spend five seconds swiping your credit card or whatever. But uh, for Amazon, it's about being able to customize that experience, track you as much as possible, see what you're doing in the real world, and then better target you online with that information. And I guess that really brings me uh, to an additional marketing pitch. And this is the same thing that works for law enforcement, but also for individuals and corporations. And that is fear, right? 
If you're scared from a security perspective, being able to track everyone who is around you is sort of like a security blanket and you can pretend that it's going to make a difference in keeping you safe. Uh, this is the marketing pitch that exists in Ring Doorbell um, and other home surveillance products that people, for some reason, willingly install all over their home, not just on like the front of their home, but also within their homes. And a lot of people are adding these, you know, facial recognition cameras in their homes. Every time I say that, I'm like, what is wrong with people? Adding facial recognition cameras in their homes for some reason. I, and I, I really try and I, I, I'm trying to understand because I guess on paper, it's, it's about saying like, oh, you can tell somebody who is not supposed to be here is, uh, is here and we can alert the police or whatever. But the fact of the matter is for most people, cameras aren't about preventing crimes outside of the fact that they exist there. Um, and knowing who's going to be somewhere isn't going to prevent something. Later, I guess in the prosecution, if something did happen, it, it might help. But, you know, you're not safer. It doesn't protect you. Cops aren't going to get there in time if anything does happen because, you know, they have terrible uh, response times in most scenarios. So it's just about trying to take care of your fear and anxiety, a fear and anxiety that Amazon feeds with their programs like Ring, which is where they, they invest in news sources to try and scare homeowners as much as possible in order to push them into buying these home surveillance products. They own Ring? Yes. So I, I think the home accessory items are interesting because one of the features with Apple's HomeKit is you can tell it that when it sees a certain face to send you a notification on your phone. I think the idea is like, well, you know, if your friend shows up at your door and rings your doorknob, you get a notification on your phone that says, hey, your friend is here. But what, made, what it made me think of is going back to the idea of individuals using this, this software for stalking purposes. Sounds like I could take one of their cameras and put it literally anywhere. And if there's someone I want to surveil or track, I could just like load that photo into it and then be like, mm -hmm. notify me every time this person walks by this uh, camera. Yeah. And then you're basically unleashing the, yeah, the public's ability to automate stalking and surveillance of their own peers. At the same time, like I could see an argument about how, like, say if you have a stalker and you want to know if somebody is stalking you around your house, it could notify you of that. So, I mean, there is a positive and a negative, but I, I think the potential for abuse is so much larger in, in a huge amount of this technology. And this is oftentimes the case when we discuss these types of surveillance technologies, that it really negates most of the positive uses. Um, because ultimately, as much as we'd like to think people are only using this stuff for good, they're almost always and overwhelmingly used for doing evil. So, I mean, we could go on endlessly about all the private companies that are doing all sorts of, of different things. Um, obviously, you know, we, we, we've discussed Clearview, we've discussed things like Amazon Ring, and we've discussed them previously more in the past. You can find that once again in, in our older episodes. But the idea about this is that we really wanted to emphasize here is that facial recognition is, isn't going away. Um, there are legislative work on that. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but more and more money is being poured into this technology. And so it feels sort of like trying to resist the build out of what we talked about in the beginning of the perfect panopticon that it could possibly very well uh, one day become seems, you know, like something that we, we can't do. Like it's overwhelming the forces put against us. So how can we fight back against that? 
But fortunately, there are many people fighting back against it. And Daniel and I took some time to speak to one person doing that. We'll get to that in just a minute. But we really want us to move into the second part of the show where we're talking about how artists, activists, technologists, um, and people working in the legislative angle are all working together to try and prevent this disaster that is slowly unfolding before us. Yeah, so for that, let's turn to activist and tech extraordinaire, Kate Bertash. So we are joined right now by Kate Bertash, uh, incredible privacy advocate, uh, fashion designer, uh, security researcher, and much more. And uh, we're thrilled to have her talk about her work and resisting some of these privacy invasion technologies and much more. So, uh, Kate, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what it is that you're doing and how we got involved in this. Hey, thanks for the amazing intro. Um, Yeah, I'm Kate and I uh, got started actually, I think it's been now officially two years ago uh, in exploring basically automated license plate readers and how they tend to read in information. Um, I was actually having a conversation with a senior investigative researcher at the EFF, uh, Dave Maz. In my day job, I do a lot of security work around abortion access. And one of the things that we were talking about was how um, license plate surveillance at clinics where people are trying to get services is pretty ubiquitous. Uh, People stand in the parking lot and record license plates uh, for the purposes of harassment and stalking. And uh, we were discussing some of like the the sort of dangers of having these massive ALPR databases that are collected by police cars uh, and how, if leaked or breached, uh, they could be misused by people who already have this kind of dedicated interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think in the course of that conversation, Dave had said something that stuck with me, which was that uh, the specificity on these readers is quite low. They tend to read in things like picket fences and uh, billboards or anything that's kind of like junk and uh, how easy it might be to even like place a piece of paper or an iPad somewhere and see if it could read in. And um, I do clothing and mostly like actually textile and fabric design just for fun. Like I like making art in my free time. And uh, it turned out to be easier than I thought to just play around with the notion of putting some of these designs on fabric and then making them wearable. So they do indeed work. And uh, I gave a talk on that, um, I think, two years back now at DEF CON at the Crypto and Privacy Village. And that's kind of history. Like after that, lots of wonderful uh, questions, interest, other artists, uh, folks like yourselves that I get to meet. So very grateful for where this silly little project has taken me. So, Kate, are you saying that this like need to obscure ALPR cameras came from the fact that like individuals, like private individuals, would be recording people's license plates, and then they can use that to like access their personal information? Yeah. So, I think one of the the kind of big misconceptions about when we are talking about surveillance technologies is that oh, okay, it's being used by police uh, for very specific purposes. I think for ALPRs in general, uh, one of the excuses that they give for collecting basically every plate in range of a reader all day long, its timestamp, its you know uh, where it's located on a map, is that it's used in the course of an investigation. Uh, obviously, these are very sensitive then and detailed databases at, that we already know actually do leak. Uh, unfortunately, there have been incidents in the past where certain uh, government contractors have had their databases of license plate photography, you know, facial photography, as you talk about on this podcast, leaked to the public. And in the hands of people who would go out and seek some of these leaked sets, 
imagine that you had the license plate of somebody who was uh, a doctor who performs abortions and you want to be able to see everywhere that they've been all day long for the last month. Uh, these are the kinds of information that unfortunately these databases do collect and keep um, as far as we know indefinitely. And so uh, just having this, this tremendously sensitive on all the time kept forever uh, database is, is especially very sensitive in the context of how many people might misuse it if they got their hands on it and how the government does misuse it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit how that led to uh, adversarial fashion and exactly what this project is? Yes. So um, I thought it was really, really interesting to just try out at first and see if I could artificially trigger these license plate readers that uh, seem to be everywhere, always on all the time. And, uh, you know, the whole point, I think there's kind of like it's twofold, which is that it got me thinking a lot about how do I make this database less useful? Uh, and by putting garbage into it and junk into it, I think we forget sometimes that with these databases that uh, they have to be paid, they have to pay to store it, mm -hmm. pay to analyze it. Uh, the systems that maintain and have to parse larger and larger data sets and clean them for all kinds of junk uh, become increasingly more expensive. So I was thinking a lot about how uh, if I'm wearing something that just helps kind of pop a little bit more trash into the set, a little bit more on the pile to obscure uh, real people's data, that I'm doing my own little small part to say, like, I do not consent to the system. Um, I think the thing that came out of the project that was really pleasantly surprising was people who were often a lot of like defense attorneys and other people who would say that this also demonstrates how the accuracy of this technology is quite low. Uh, it makes for a really great example to talk about uh, in, in a you know, public or even in court about how, uh, you know, if you're going to use this system to try and implicate somebody, especially for being in the place and time of a crime, you can see how it can be fooled by a t-shirt. And that kind of lowers the public's confidence in the notion that these technologies should be able to decide for us whether somebody truly was where they said they were uh, in court. So I think uh, that that has been actually really surprising in a good way to me. And I think kind of has changed my mind about what the point of a lot of these anti-surveillance fashion and art projects can really accomplish, which is cool. That's really neat. And for those of you who haven't seen Kate's fashion yet, you can check it out at adversarialfashion.com. But they're basically T-shirts, jackets, all sorts of things mm -hmm. that are covered with uh, designs of sort of computer schematics, but also license plates. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as you wear these outfits around town, all these Alper cameras are picking this up, adding this to the database and poisoning all that data, at least a little bit. Yeah. So it, not only is it is it cool technologically and in terms of defending everyone's privacy, but they also just look really cool. So oh, we'll thanks. link to that on the <laughs> website and y'all can check it out. It's definitely worth seeing. And I, I know I'm going to pick up some of this. Wonderful. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that artistic angle, because a lot of times when we talk about this, these privacy conversations and, and activism involving privacy, it's so technical. And I see a lot of people's eyes sort of gloss over and they say, yeah, you know, I could delete my, my Facebook, delete Google, do all these things and, and sit up here in a, in a shack in the middle of the woods in order to finally <laughs> regain my privacy. But, you know, that isn't practical yeah. um, and it's definitely not fun to do. But your project and these projects that try and blend uh, art and fun in terms mm -hmm. of actual technological activism, I think are really great way that people who care but maybe don't have the technical chops or the time or uh, or ability to to get involved in this to actually help make a difference. So uh, if you could speak a little bit about mm -hmm. meshing this artistic and this technological world, I think we'd love to hear about that. 
I'm so glad you brought this up too, because I think uh, one of the the kind of really inspiring things about spaces like hackerspaces is that uh, there's a very heavy DIY angle. Um, people just sort of try things and, and see if it works. And I think uh, what I don't want ever to be a limiter is for somebody to look at a project like this and say, well, I don't code. So how am I supposed to participate? Especially if I'm my traditional training is as a designer or an artist. Um, I think one of the really amazing things, and it's kind of terrible for us as consumers, but uh, amazing for these kinds of projects is that the same technology that is implied in different state surveillance projects and state surveillance technologies is actually almost identical or the same ones that are used in uh, commercially accessible applications that you can use. So like, for example, I tested all of my designs by using um, OpenALPR, which is uh, not only an API that you could build into something to test things yourself, uh, but you can actually use a consumer application to access that API. And there are other commercial apps that uh, read license plates. I think they're mostly geared at people like landlords or business owners who just want to be able to walk through a parking lot with an iPhone. And having these sort of no-code tools to be able to iterate, test, uh, see if your work is reacting the way that you want to is so incredibly helpful. Um, OpenALPR is indeed used in many state systems and uh, is one of the top vendors. So you have sort of a, a, a rare opportunity to be able to uh, play around and, you know, see if, you, if the ways that you want to express yourself uh, can align with some of your goals of like, triggering a license plate reader. Um, I love telling people they can use things like Snapchat filters, Instagram filters, uh, the, the section on your photos section of your phone, like when you're trying to take a photo with a camera, uh, it often draws a little bounding box around your face. That is a really amazing way to test whether things uh, that you are working on either artificially trigger facial recognition or block it. Uh, and I think it's a really wonderful way for someone who has a different area of skills um, artists, uh, makeup artists, uh, all folks who are kind of like working in different mediums to start to get comfortable with the notion that like, this is what people who are technical people do. They're just doing it in a different way. And so like, you are absolutely smart enough and creative enough to be able to like be part of this conversation and tackle these problems if you want to. Kate, I'm just curious a little bit about maybe your more like philosophical approach to thinking about surveillance and you know because you hear some people say hey you know if you have nothing to hide what's the big deal but what do you see as like the kind of larger big picture questions that mass surveillance raises about our society and maybe where it's headed and why as you said it's so important to voice the fact that we don't consent to that yeah i think uh this is a really really exciting question to be thinking about right now because I think that obviously we just came through this big boom time of like a lot of people uh, deciding that they could take advantage of a lot of the, the public tools or open source or APIs, uh, public data sets, and everybody and their dog wants to like roll out their own product for geared at either police or, or uh, you know, defense contractors. Often they're, they're very poorly built and poorly implemented. And I think a lot of it, and especially like the sort of runaway train aspect, is that as we try to figure out that you can't, of course, put the toothpaste back in the tube on a lot of this, um, unfortunately, regulating it is extremely hard. I have a lot of conversations and times that I, I try to think through about how we actually haven't answered a lot of the questions about what we think we should be able to know about each other absent the technology. Uh, I think that it's unfortunately, like when we talk about 
you know, facial recognition and in particular things like your license plate, something that you need driving around. We actually haven't really had any good decisions made about what it is we should be allowed to know about each other in public space. What is public space? What has the right to be, uh, what are, what information am I entitled to if you are outside of the confines of your home? Um, and I think one of the bigger philosophical questions that I have is um, what about you should I be able to apply any kind of like analysis in a mathematical way at all. Hypothetically, if I'm going to decide on those rights, it shouldn't matter whether in practice that math is perfectly correct all the time, or as we know, often in surveillance and particularly in facial recognition, that it's full of errors. Uh, I think, you know, those are both very important questions, but I think uh, we haven't really decided whether I should have the right to take like publicly accessible information about you and to be able to run it through some kind of system that makes any kind of decision um, absent mm -hmm. the person. And I think those are, those are things we need to start talking about because I really worry otherwise that every time we try to come up with both legislation and then solutions and then also our own cultural ideas about how we think about it, um, we're always going to be really too focused on what the specific technology is that we're looking at. Uh, you know, like you play whack-a-mole with like bands on facial recognition or, you know, something where I'm supposed to be able to cover my license plate when it's lawfully parked. And these are all sort of like grasping, I think, at the point, which is, uh, that we need to make bigger decisions about what is private, what is public, what is admissible in court. What do I have to write to know about my neighbor? What is my recourse for when somebody misuses any information about me, overt or covert? And I, I think this is like where I hope that art in particular and projects like mine, um, what they, a big role that they can play in these sort of like big, fuzzy, unwieldy discussions is that they can provide this way to consolidate some of the questions into a clear example that the public can react to. So if I have a shirt that triggers a license plate reader, that creates a strong emotional reaction to the notion that a license plate reader should be able to implicate you for a crime. And that's, you know, helps us kind of like find a foothold somewhere to begin talking about these like, I think more ongoing philosophical problem questions of like, you know, should I be able to take pictures of your face in public and use them for my own purposes, BI, the government, a private individual corporation. I think that's a really great perspective because it, it also mirrors what you're talking about earlier, where, uh, you know, not just tech people should be having these conversations. Yes. Uh, we should be involving everyone in whatever way we can, whether that's, like you said, testing the, the facial recognition on the camera app on your phone uh -huh. or just talking to people about saying, this is OK, this is not, you know, what are we talking about philosophically and how can we integrate that in our holistic view legislatively, but also culturally? And, and that's a really great perspective. Um, just to uh, wrap this up, because this has been a fantastic conversation, I would keep it going if I could. But yeah, um, I'm sort of curious, what are what are you working on now, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, I'm excited. Uh, is it just Alper stuff? Or are you doing facial recognition? What's next? Uh, branching out. Uh, I think I'm, I'm really excited because uh, we were sort of like handed this boon of, uh, you know, for public health reasons, we're all wearing masks mm -hmm. these days, which actually has been a really, really big pickup on our ability to not only show that um, masks are a really exceptional way to protect yourself, your own hygiene, but also to uh, reinforce sort of your surveillance hygiene and uh, protect yourself from facial recognition. Uh, so I have some projects on kind of working on is there a difference on the type of mask? Like, does it, you know, are there particular patterns? Are there particular orientations? Amount of coverage of the face we know is already kind of important, but I still have sort of like hunches I'll try to chase on whether uh, colors, patterns, uh, other types of like 
accessories you can wear uh, make a difference. Um, I think I am very skeptical of a lot of the claims around uh, the facial recognition models that work with masks. And I think trying to, one of my projects ongoing is to try to quantify my skepticism in that regard. Uh, other things I'm really excited about, I really have a lot of interest in some of the other models like the YOLO, I think we're up to like, what is it, version five now, which is like that sort of like whole object recognition model. Uh, that one in particular, I think, is more sensitive to fashion choices in a way that we might not appreciate fully right now. Uh, and so I've been running some tests on that that I'm hoping to put out pretty soon. Um, I'm also really increasingly interested in adversarial environments. Um, and I think, you know, public art, and I, just to, to lead in with a little bit of a hint, which is that murals and public art may make a big mm -hmm. difference in how well some of these things work. And I think encouraging us to like sort of uh, lean towards the unexpected or, you know, like all, all of these recognition systems are heavily dependent in, in a very simplified way on what they expect to see. And I think uh, between all of these different things that we can sort of create this, uh, the same airing in, in public space towards trying to leverage being unexpected. Uh, this is a time that I think art can uh, bring a lot of color and joy back to a very dark time. And I think it can have some benefits with our anti-surveillance goals as well. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, do you have anything else, Daniel? Um, trying to think if, <laughs> uh, I mean, I could ask more, but it wouldn't like be a nice final, like it wouldn't be like a period, you know, Mark on the interview, but. No worries. Uh, if you think we missed something, we could just put it somewhere else. Yeah. In that, um, yeah. Well, I like the questions you raised about like the broader questions, because we do see like people are being outraged now by like the social dilemma on mm -hmm. Netflix, for instance, of like oh, yeah. the behind the scenes algorithms that are tracking people and then changing their behavior. But you could argue that at least people are choosing to interact with those. I mean, ostensibly choosing to interact with those mobile apps and such. Mm -hmm. But this is, yeah, like you said, behind the scenes, in public, we're not even outwardly consenting to it. Yeah. But to ask another question, though, I'm curious, like, do you see this, these adversarial responses, the clothing, the artwork, is it going to lead to, over time, like a degrading of the artificial or, or like algorithm-driven surveillance? Or is it, could it possibly create like an arms race where the response to it gives the designers of it the tools to upgrade the system, and then the adversarial response has to improve. What, what do you think the trajectory of that is? Yeah, uh, this is actually another really big philosophical question that I know there are other anti-surveillance artists who disagree with what I'm going to say, which is that uh, there are some artists who say, I don't want to do this anymore. I think I'm just helping make this better by continuing to show these examples of where it does not work. Um, I find actually that I don't necessarily worry about that as much because most of these systems are not implemented by experts. They are implemented by people who need to meet a deadline for a corporate product. And so they race around the internet and try to find something on GitHub that they can roll out in a couple of weeks. Uh, they are not doing algorithmic auditing. They are not, uh, you know, figuring out even creative ways to check what they should and shouldn't be doing uh, to make sure it still works in light of these adversarial samples. Um, so I think like what it can do is sort of reinforce this like basic sense of entitlement to noncompliance, which I think is, uh, you know, like, sure, not everybody in, I wish everyone in the country would like wear a little license plate reader shirt. It would probably make a difference. But I think honestly that, that what can be just as contagious instead is people's like attitude towards it. 
And uh, I think one of the, some of the best feedback that I get is that it starts incredible conversations. People are just so excited to hear and uh, talk about uh, why somebody's wearing that shirt, what it means to them. Um, I think fashion is one of these things where we get a chance to kind of signal our values. And I think that these art projects, while they may not win any arms race, like technology, of course, will keep getting better. I think we can actually win this sort of uh, mindset arms race, which is to, you know, make sure that we get there first on how people uh, feel empowered to think about and talk about and to even wear sort of like the place that they want technology to have or not in the world and the person they want to be in that world. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that's such an important point that a topic like mass surveillance can seem so overwhelming and so like hopeless. Mm -hmm. And that kind of defeated attitude and apathy that it can breed really just, yeah, opens the door to even more, you know, Orwellian technology and, and our yeah. um, complacency with that. And I think what you're presenting is is the possibility of our taking back control as people, as culture, as society, and that even if the technology doesn't go away, we can say, hey, we can respond to this. We have some voice and power to, to respond to it. And there's a lot of good that can come out of that. Yeah. And it's, it's really important for people to not feel helpless. I think every little bit of having your power back, even if it's something that is symbolic in many ways or educational in most of its purpose, I think uh, just feeling like you have any agency is is kind of a big first step, and it's a really wonderful step. I also wanted to ask if uh, you have any favorite other uh, anti-surveillance artists or activists that you'd like uh, to recommend people check out. I think actually uh, the biggest sort of influence in both uh, just seeing the broad creativity as well as the collaboration has been, uh, for me, uh, artist Adam Harvey. I think one of the really, you know, we all know this work very well. I think probably on this podcast, this work has come up before. But I will say that the big influential piece that uh, I thought was very important was that uh, in working on some of his earlier projects that got a lot of really great traction, um, the the TV Dazzle makeup took off because people had the opportunity to feel like it belonged to them. Like you, people mm -hmm. could make it their own. And then the the practice of releasing things like face charts, which are the the diagrams that, that makeup artists who worked with him on this project uh, did to to release their designs and, and guidelines and uh, information. I think both of those were really, really critical, which is to have resources where people can do it themselves, but also to help ensure that centered at the very middle of your project is the ability for people to feel ownership of what they're doing. So very, very inspiring to me. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for this, but I just want to give you the opportunity to add anything else here that you feel like we missed or any projects, people, uh, uh, or your own projects, uh, donation funds, whatever it is you, you think we should, uh, shout out that listeners should check out. Uh, yeah, all of the, uh, tutorials that I offer on kind of my methods, as well as a stack of tools are available at adversarialfashion.com. Um, I love seeing folks uh, give these techniques a try for themselves. So please, please, please feel free to reach back out and show me what you make. Uh, I am can be found at adversarialware on Twitter as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us. Uh, Daniel, I, that was a really interesting conversations and I, I wish we had more time and we could keep on going. Honestly, I could sit there all day. There's so much I want to talk about and cover and I'm really excited to hear you know, what her future projects are. Um, I think they're going to be exciting. But uh, Kate and uh, 
Adam Harvey and other people aren't the only ones involved in this art and activism fighting against facial recognition, surveillance, and the, the rest of this technology. And uh, some of these concepts that Kate talks about with, you know, allowing non-technological people to fight back about having these conversations about privacy that are so important are important, you know, and I, this is what I'm excited about. We got past some of the boring stuff here. And I kind of want to mention, though, like the over surveillance of like communities of color. One more thing, though, I just want to point out, David, before we move on, and I don't have to go too deep into it, but we did mention Rite Aid. So this is an example of over surveillance in low income and specifically targeting communities of color. So in 2012, Rite Aid deployed facial recognition in some 200 of its stores. And journalists found that in areas that were poor or less white, they were nearly three times more likely to have the surveillance equipment and also like nearly three times as likely to have it in neighborhoods where the customers were, again, predominantly black people, um, other communities of color. And they interviewed a bunch of the loss prevention staff at the store who, by the way, their job was when the surveillance camera picked up a match for someone that apparently had like shoplifted or done something else the store didn't like, they went up to this person and told them to leave. And it turns out, like I said, these cameras were extraordinarily bad. They interviewed a lot of people. Here's what one of the staffers said, quote, it doesn't pick up black people well. If your eyes are the same way or if you're wearing your headband like another person is wearing a headband, you're going to get a hit. And I don't, I don't know if this happened at Rite Aid, David, but I know we talked about in our last facial recognition uh, episode that some of these retail stores that were deploying facial recognition, they wouldn't even have a staff escort people out. They just wouldn't open the door. So you walk up, you wait for the automatic door to open, and it just doesn't open. So now you've even removed the possibility that a real person is going to double check the cameras or even talk to you, and you're just shut out. So this is a huge uh, point that we didn't spend a lot of time talking about, is that when you automate not just the surveillance, but also the enforcement of that surveillance in an infrastructure that is 97% inaccurate, you are deepening and entrenching racial bias, discrimination, because again, these things are disproportionately bad at identifying people of color. So innocent people are becoming criminalized, they're being locked out of services, and this is happening in predominantly low-income communities where people are already struggling. I mean, you think about like a Walmart locking somebody out of their services for good, and that's the only store in their neighborhood where they can walk to because they don't have a car and now they can't get groceries and now like how does that add stress to their life and just kind of you know compound upon compounded stresses because of the way we criminalize and over police and underfund um, poor communities in this country or, or to take that example slightly farther daniel imagine amazon is able to successfully market their facial recognition checkout technology to all sorts of other businesses and you happen to look very similar to somebody who gets blacklisted for some reason a, a no-fly list so to speak before retail maybe they shoplifted something all of a sudden you might find yourself unable to participate in any sort of like actually buying stuff on the ground. You can't get in the store. If you get in the store, you can't check out because it's, it's blacklisted you. This happened all the time in real life with an actual list when the no-fly list was going around. People with similar names to people who were allegedly terrorists suddenly weren't able to travel. Imagine that, but millions of times larger on technology that 
quite frankly, is fucking terrible. <laughs> that isn't something that 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 you know could be a, a potential disaster in the future, but almost certainly will. I guarantee you there will be articles about that someday. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. And to go even deeper with how this technology is being deployed, we're now finding that facial recognition cameras are being deployed increasingly in schools, colleges, and universities. And again, predominantly in these schools where the students are students of color. It's not just being used for the ostensible security like uh, uh, reason that, uh, that usually people say, but it's also being used in these schools for mundane things like library checkouts, paying for lunch, taking attendance, these types of things that go on in school. And so uh, there was a study done by University of Michigan's Ford School of Science that concluded when they looked at this that, quote, Facial recognition cameras erode privacy, define the notion of an acceptable student, incite racism, commodify data, and institutionalize inaccuracy. We expect that such surveillance of our children will teach them that it is normal to have little autonomy over their personal data. In an environment in which students have no control over their biometric data, they are likely to leave school with a sense of powerlessness and a distorted understanding of whether and how they can and should protect their data privacy, end quote. And yeah, that's, that's obviously terrible. We could go into a lot of reasons why, but think again back to the whole social cooling aspect, where when you know you're being surveilled, you're more likely to change your behavior, dial down your true self, and conform as much as possible, subconsciously or otherwise, to some whatever the standard is, and that standard is is usually not who you want to be, but some just like typical defined, as they say in the report, acceptable person. And what who who gets to define what is acceptable behavior? But anyway, now that these things are being deployed predominantly in communities of color, you get this doubling effect of social cooling, where it's not just being surveilled, but being surveilled in a way that's telling you you're a criminal, telling you that you're not behaving correctly. Right. And so communities of color are experiencing this way more, and it's disproportionately saying that they're criminals. And it's kind of like you ever seen like that cliche in TV shows where, you know, a black person walks into a convenience store and then the shop owner starts like following them around because he thinks they're going to steal. That's what we're, we're doing that, except uh, we're institutionalizing it, we're automating it. Um, and that's, uh, that creates a lot of problems, I think, in our culture and our society and the people in the way that people perceive themselves, the way that we perceive others. And we should definitely put a stop to it whatever way we can. And I don't know how, but there's got to be a way. But I really want to talk about how people are fighting back. And Kate is a great example of that. Adversarialfashion.com. Check it out. The threads are sick. What would you say about them, Anthony? I think it looks pretty drippy. Drippy. That's that's the hip word. So, so I I got one of theirs. I ordered one of their uh, one of Kate's hoodies. I gotta sweatshirts. I gotta make an order too. I'm gonna I'm gonna do an order for you and me, Anthony, and we'll we'll grab that oh, stuff. Cool. Um, so we will check that out. I encourage everyone else to. Uh, but there are so many people doing so many cool things, and uh, there's a lot of different ways you can evolve in this. One of the ones that was mentioned that Kate brought up was Adam Harvey, who is most known for CV Dazzle, which was his thesis project as he was graduating from NYU. Uh, and lots of people have seen this idea. And 
this was done a few years ago. The technology has moved past what it was doing at the time. So basically don't copy exactly what he did because it won't work anymore. But the idea is if you paint your face in cool kind of like cyberpunk ways and put your hair in interesting ways to obscure parts of your face, you can sort of trick a lot of this facial recognition technology. And we'll post some pictures online. There have been updates to it. Uh, there are new versions of, of computer vision Dazzle, CV Dazzle, that are more effective for newer algorithms. I'll post links to that once again online. But this sort of intersection of fashion and technology and resisting technology is really interesting to me. And I think it's interesting, you mentioned this, Anthony, that uh, you like the idea that people resisting the invasion of their privacy could have actual impacts in the way that we all look. Mm -hmm. I was reading, when I saw like there's some like face accessories, it just seems like, Culturally, like stuff I haven't seen before, at least, uh, I don't know, here around like the New York area, it'd be interesting to see like it becomes super common where more people are wearing like pretty enthusiastic makeup or just like specific designed articles of clothing to combat facial recognition. I, I think that could be really cool um, and just like a switch up in the fashion industry, I guess. Yeah, I would I would love to see. It to be mainstream to wear clothing that naturally throws off security cameras. Because like as Kate mentioned, like right now, I don't think there's enough people doing it to like really put a dent in like the broader systems, but that's just because not enough people are doing it. So right now it's more of like a statement of I don't consent to this. Mm -hmm. And as she said, it creates conversations with people. When you wear a license plate hoodie down the street or like at a party, then people are gonna ask you about it. And that's what's, what creates the conversation. And I hope that we can, like, one day, it will just be normal to have streetwear and otherwise that throws off uh, security cameras. How, how well does it throw it off? Well, it, it varies. It depends on the technology. It depends on what you're wearing. But some of them are very effective. Uh, there's some very interesting designs that we've seen come out of Asia where they've uh, engineered jackets, t-shirts, and I'll put photos of these videos on the website, ashesashes.org, because a lot of the stuff you have to see to understand. But these are specially designed pieces of clothing to resist uh, the YOLO, which is one of the most popular object uh, detection uh, algorithms that, that Kate mentioned that you'll see a lot that's often used for military industrial applications, uh, to defeat the YOLO object recognition. So it would normally identify you as a person, but if you're wearing one of these outfits, these rain jackets, these t-shirts, it just doesn't see you at all. It doesn't think you're there. Um, and also, it looks drippy as hell. It's super cool stuff. Doesn't it have like images of like chairs and stuff there are some that do things like that there's some that just have sort of psychedelic patterns lots of interesting palette colors uh in, in unexpected ways that make really beautiful clothing and it's something that we haven't seen before but it's very sort of cyberpunk and exciting and you know there's a lot of different genres of clothing you know we hear things like streetwear whatever and the word i've heard applied to this type of anti-surveillance technology is stealth wear which sounds cool as hell to me and i hope it really catches on and the more people that are aware that this stuff exists and also that it looks cool. I think the more uh, excited we can get people about this sort of stuff. I, I remember, you know, a decade or so ago, um, I first started using um, an application on my phone called Text Secure and uh, a system application called Red Phone that would allow me to send encrypted text messages to anyone else who also had this app, which, you know, was basically nobody, but <laughs> was a pretty cool concept at a time. And I was trying to get everyone to install it and no one ever really did. You know, I had encrypted IRC, all sorts of stuff. 
and nobody ever wanted to play with me. You know, I was like, well, we've, we've got <laughs> Snowden is, is, a, was a couple years later. Um, all those revelations came to light and people are like, okay, maybe we should start encrypting stuff. And slowly and slowly tech secure became signal. And, uh, now, uh, especially after this year, I basically only communicate over signal, even with people that, that aren't in any way interested in privacy, aren't in any way interested in encryption family members, um, old people, young people, uh, they're all on my signal and that that's mostly how I'm, I'm talking to everyone. And that's really exciting to me because at some point these, the privacy applications got so good that people just use them by default. You know, they were good enough and, and they, they spread that way. And what I'm hoping to see is that as we go forward and the sort of fashion designs become, uh, more in depth and people put more time into it and, and they also are just recognized as being cool as hell, that it sort of starts becoming a ubiquitous way of dressing yourself. We start integrating that in our larger culture. And then as that grows, this idea of, of resisting surveillance and resisting the, these privacy violations expands in the process. And we can actually have, you know, the cool cyberpunk future that uh, we're all imagining all the time and uh, living this like uh, politically resistant life just based on what shirt you decide to pick out in the morning. And I, I think that's really cool and exciting. But there are outside of fashion designs, you know, lots of different ways people are, are getting involved with this stuff. Um, we have CB Dazzle. We mentioned that. Uh, juggalo makeup, some people have found is pretty effective at fighting facial recognition. Um, I found conflicting reports. Some people found uh, that it worked really well. Some people found that at certain angles, it doesn't work at all. You can find more information on the website. But one thing I found that's pretty cool was a an idea from uh, Jocelyn McDonald, who was doing a study and found that uh, she was able to flummox facial recognition with uh, basically putting flowers in her hair and on her head. And I'm going to call this like flower block. It's a way of disguising yourself in facial recognition, utilizing uh, like cool flowers in your hair and obscuring your face. It looks really cool. And what I, I really want to drive home is the way that she tested it. And I think when we're thinking about these facial recognition, these computer vision stuff, it seems really technical, right? Like how do I jump into this and how do I try and uh, see if this stuff is actually working? But what Jocelyn did, and I'll put this video on ashesashes.org, just check out this episode's webpage. What she did was she just opened up her phone while she's decorating herself in the face and opened up Snapchat and uh, tracked her face and put on the, you know, puppy dog filter or whatever. And as she goes and she puts more and more flowers on, she waits until the algorithm is no longer able to find her face. And she moves her head around until it's definitely not tracking her anymore. And boom. She's done it. She's defeated the facial recognition. And maybe it won't work in every single application, but that's a really easy way anyone at home can see if this type of technology is working for them. You don't need advanced computer algorithms. You don't need anything. All you need is your phone. Um, you know, see if the, the face ID unlocks, see if Snapchat works, see if the Instagram filters are doing anything to you. And if they're not, uh, then you've beat facial recognition. It's, it's that easy. Didn't you say that a while back that Signal has an implement like uh, a feature in the app to scrub your face from protests. Yeah, there's there is actually facial recognition uh, built into uh, the signal photo processing, where you can hit a button and it detects all the faces and blurs them automatically before sending out the photo. So I guess if we're talking about or useful applications of facial recognition, that is one. I should have brought that up earlier. I mean, I really like these ideas. It's like a way to like personally thwart the cameras but what i like the most are ideas where you 
take this technology and you turn it back on the people who created it. Ooh, now my interest has peaked, Daniel. Yeah. Um, so just like a couple examples, um, a really good one is there's, there's an artist in France. His name is Paulo Sirio, which could be a mispronunciation. I'm sorry. He, what he did is he took photos or, or like captured photos of French police officers, uh, 4,000 photos in all. And he put it into an art exhibit to basically showcase the faces of all these police officers, um, mostly doing like anti-protest stuff and like, you know, generally harassing citizens and like looking down the sights of guns and yelling, all this type of stuff. Well, after he displayed this, he got a call from France's interior minister. I don't know if he actually called him or not, but he did threaten legal action. And as a result, uh, the artist took the photos down. So it's, it's really interesting that they're real fast to make you take down something when you point it at them. And remember, this is just a photo of their face. It's not even like listing their name or anything. Mm -hmm. They're real quick to make you take that down. Meanwhile, you know, they're taking all of our photos, uploading it to private companies and then selling it to the highest bidder. So makes you wonder what they're so scared of. Um, I think it's also worth noting there that uh, the artist didn't break any laws. Nothing that they, he was doing was illegal. So this this, you know, claim of legal action was a bluff. But, uh, you know, when you're facing the unlimited resources of the government who can very easily destroy your life, it's, it's uh, you know, hard to call that kind of bluff. But he's not the only person who's been collecting photos of uh, people in order to push an activist message. There are lots of people working right now around the world with uh, police protests um, in Eastern Europe, in the United States, to build up databases of bad police officers based on facial recognition in order to identify them and hopefully cause them to eventually get their, uh, you know, comeuppance, I guess. But it's not just police officers that are targeted. As Daniel mentioned, uh, the people in power are scared of this. So some activists wandered around Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., wearing these ridiculous outfits, like all white outfits, with a phone strapped to their head, recording images, videos, photographs of basically all the people who came in and out of these buildings, politicians, lobbyists, uh, interns and everything in between, and uh, were utilizing this data they were collecting, almost 13,000 faces uh, for facial recognition. And uh, this was, it was not supposed to be any specific project they were doing with it outside of just the activists acknowledging that, you know, this technology can be turned back on those in power. But I, I think it really is a good message that it is that simple to make people scared of this stuff. And, and when people in power do feel the lens turned on them, uh, you can feel uh, them start to sweat a little bit. And that's when we start seeing legislative action. And so there are a lot of people around the country right now, a lot of organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the ACLU, and other uh, legal orgs that are trying to help assist municipalities and states in pushing through facial recognition bans. Most of these bans, and there are a number of cities who have done it, ranging from uh, large cities like Boston to smaller ones like Portland, Maine, uh, to uh, ban facial recognition, typically only for law enforcement use, but Portland, Oregon has banned both uh, private and public use of it, which is a good step forward. Uh, but there are a lot of difficulties in passing these types of laws because, as we've mentioned, there are many 
uh, quote-unquote benevolent uses like unlocking your phone that makes blanket bans on facial recognition difficult to actually put in place. So uh, more work on this legislative angle is good, and there are ways you can plug into those efforts, but it is not the the panacea that we'd like to see. And, uh, you know, this technology can always be used illegally, as oftentimes the government does until they get caught and then they pretended, oops, we didn't we didn't mean to do that. And what they didn't mean to do is, of course, get caught. Like I know, like now in 2020, we've had like COVID and there's a bunch of people that are like not out as much and wearing masks. Has that slowed down like the machine learning Ooh. at all? Or, and does it like, has that negated um, facial recognition in any way? I'm glad you asked, Anthony. And I'm surprised that Daniel hasn't brought this up. I was saving it for the end of the episode, but here we are. Perfect timing. And uh, the simple fact of the matter is, and this is what Adam Harvey, the creative of CV Dazzle, has said, is the single best thing you could do right now to thwart facial recognition is to just wear a mask. Not only does it help you suppress the spread of COVID and is good for public health, but also it absolutely demolishes oftentimes, these facial recognition programs. And it's not a perfect panacea. There's lots of research being put into defeating masks with facial recognition, of course, centered primarily in China. Lots of labs there have been working on it for a while because mask use is much more common and has been for a longer time in Asia than it is here in the United States. But with the United States finding itself in the middle of this pandemic covered in masks, People are finding that the facial recognition products that they paid hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in order to contract from organizations like Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, etc., all of a sudden aren't so effective. So these companies are scrambling to try and conquer masks. And the United States government has published some research to find out how effective masks are in defeating these types of facial recognition and analyze, you know, different types of masks, small masks, white masks, black masks, you know, what works the best? Large black masks that cover your nose are really effective at demolishing uh, facial recognition. And uh, the more you can cover up your face if, with a mask, with sunglasses, with headphones over your ears, ears are increasingly being used to uh, identify individuals now that masks are covering much of their face, the better off you are in defeating this type of technology. And, and it, Hopefully, you know, masks have become a everyday part of our tech of our outfit. Right. So to go back to this fashion idea, Anthony, where mm -hmm. we adjust to these types of things, uh, masks are slowly becoming part of our outfits. This is part of our fashion and ways of expressing ourselves. And I don't see this changing for the next at least year. And by that point, it may become a permanent part of our larger society. And so uh, I, I find that really encouraging, especially in, in states like New York. Uh, here in New York City, we have anti-mask laws that don't let you wear masks outside unless it's Halloween or certain gatherings. But because of coronavirus, those laws have been relaxed. So technically, it is still illegal to talk about those, you know, perfect panopticon enforcement of laws, Daniel. And that has enabled a lot of the protests that we see around the city. The fact that people know that they can be semi-anonymous, that they can hide a little bit from New York Police Department's uh, facial recognition program. And also not only that, but the doxing efforts of uh, right-wing groups who are trying to figure out who you are if you're protesting to protect black lives is really important in, in giving people the confidence to be out on the streets in order to fight for something that is good, which ties in once again to these ideas that sometimes you have to break laws in order to push society forward. And just 
as a quick final plug in here, because I would go remiss without saying it, there is, for those of you who are digitally inclined, an incredible tool called Fox released by university that helps to subtly adjust your selfies online to help, so to speak, poison the well of organizations like Clearview who may scrape these adjusted files. And then when they take your photo, uh, they won't be able to uh, match correctly to you. And it, it does so in a way that you can't really tell much of a difference, but it is enough to defeat these simple facial algorithms. So check that out. Link on the website. There are so many ways that you as an individual can get involved in this fight against facial recognition and all the horrors it can cause in our society and is actively causing right now. Like we said, everything from fashion choices to uh, legislative and activist efforts, to technological wizardry, if you're doing adversarial research, or just wear a mask. And one excellent piece of advice that I heard repeated from many researchers in this area is that if you don't find yourself with any of these things, no masks, no, no fashion, no makeup, uh, one of the things that actually works really well in defeating facial recognition is just smiling really big. Um, and I, I think that's a really nice uh, idea. And, you know, the more we smile, the uh, better the world will be, I guess, on a number of levels. We go into these dark times with a smile on our face. And a chipper in our step. That's a lot to think about. As always, Daniel. But think about it. We hope you will. You can find all of these links, these cool fashion outfits, these videos, everything, and much more on our website at ashesashes.org. As always, a lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible. And we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, uh, sharing these ideas and conversations with your friends, your pals, your family, and supporting us on patreon.com slash ashesashescast. I just mailed out a round of stickers for our supporters there today. So get yours next month. You can also email us at contact at ashesashes.org. That's where we receive that beautiful correction from our listener, Bob. Thank you, Bob, for that. <laughs> and um, we read everything and we appreciate it. Don't like email? Well, I don't either. And there are a million other ways to keep up with what we're doing and to reach out and tell us that we're doing something wrong. And you can find us on every social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're all there. Reddit, our Ashes Ashes Cast. Come check that out. And if you want to participate directly in the community, you can do so with our lovely Discord people. 600 plus of your favorite Ashes Ashes fans having amazing conversations from all around the world. Right there, you can find a link. Just go to ashesashes.org, community on the top, then click the Discord invite. Thanks for watching, y'all. This, this was a fun one. They're, they're not watching, bro. Thanks for listening. Sorry, I'm used to the, the stream. But you can also check out every Tuesday at 8 o'clock. Twitch.tv slash Ashes Ashes Cast. We hope that you will join us and we hope that you will join us in a couple of weeks when we've got an awesome episode about conspiracy thinking coming out. It's going to be a good one. So we hope to see you then. Until then. But until then. This is Ashes Ashes. <laughs> I do and farewell. See ya. Bye bye. Wouldn't want to be ya. Wow, that was a mess. <laughs>